It's time for the Hadit.com radio show. Hadit.com radio is an in-depth look at all things VA. If you need help with the VA, log on to Hadit.com. Now, here's your host, Gerald Cook. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, on this uh, 20th day of April, 2017. We're here with our co-host, Jay Basser. And today, our guest speaker is John Dorley. He's a VA claims agent, and uh, uh, by golly, he'll do you a good job. And, uh, uh, you know, we're going to try to enlighten you all, uh, talk about some things here. Uh, We did have uh, uh, President uh, Trump. He signed in that uh, bill today on uh, choice uh, for veterans, uh, you, but uh, we're hoping that's going to work out. Uh, I don't know. I guess you still need to do the pre-approval, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. But uh, uh, John Dorley, how, how are you doing today? I'm good, guys. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. and. Talk to all the listeners out there, and maybe we can get some phone calls, uh, uh, take some calls, and, and triage some of these cases too. But yeah, calling from Minnesota here, it's it's finally we're breaking out of the winter. It's about 62 degrees now, so we're all happy about that. But but yeah, uh, you know I've been staying real busy, uh, working claims and and working with the VA regional offices uh, all across the country to try to. Uh, maximize uh disability compensation claims and appeals for veterans and so um but but it's been real busy and and so certainly if if anyone wants to call in with their particular question or case they'd be happy to take it oh yeah let me give out our call-in number john uh the call-in number folks if you have a question or comment uh, don't hesitate call in and and we'll try to get you taken care of. If we don't know the answer, we'll we'll get one uh, for you that's uh, proper. Uh, the call-in number is 347-237-4819. Now, that call-in number, once again, is 347 237 Four eight one nine, and once you get in there, uh, there'll be a gal talking into recording. Uh, uh, you just hit number one, and that'll put you here in the queue with us. And we'll try to keep an eye out. And if we see you in here, we'll well we'll bring you on in. Uh, so, if you have a question or comment, um, please call in. Uh, yeah, what what do you think of this new uh, choice? Well, it's not new, but this uh, President Trump signing in this uh, law on the choice or extending the law on or whatever he did on this choice uh, thing. Well, uh, that, I would think that would be beneficial to quite a few veterans, don't you, John? Yeah, I think so, Gerald. I think any time you give veterans an option when it comes to the VA Medical Center is always a good thing. I know President Trump is, is committed to keeping his promise to veterans, and so this is just one step towards that, and, and as well as building our military, which which is uh, 
another topic we can talk about. But, uh, yeah, certainly with the uh, the VA Medical Center Choice Program before in the olden days, you pretty much got the VA Medical Center and that was it. You, you were subject to a very, very long waiting list and it just got to be a mess. And then I would say about five, six years ago they came up with the, the VA Choice Program where if you were pre-qualified by the VA Medical Center, uh, you could secure medical care outside the VA Medical Center as long as you met certain criteria. I think it's 40 miles outside the perimeter of the nearest VA Medical Center, uh, as well as uh, uh, a certain distance. I think it was 40 miles, if I remember right. But you know, getting pre-approved and all oh, the waiting list was the other thing. If, if you're if you're if you need to get into a specific clinic, and the waiting list is I think if it's longer than 30 days or 60 days, if I recall, uh, uh, they would uh, afford you the opportunity to get approved to be seen outside the VA Medical Center, uh, more often than not a medical medical care provider of your choice. Um, that's the name. But, um, no, I think with President Trump, he, he essentially just continued the program more than anything and ensured its funding at least through uh, this fiscal year. Uh, I would assume that when fiscal year comes up, uh, 2017, that it'll get extended, uh, but uh, uh, we'll have to see on that, too. Well, let's hope so. Uh, you know, 30 to 60 days, though, doggone it, that seemed like an awful long time to me, John. If a guy's sick, you can't wait that long. Um so I, I believe that bill needs to be uh, uh, worked on. Uh, that That's not good enough, 30 to 60 days. Uh, a guy's sick and hurt, and no tell him what, he could be having all kinds of problems. And you got to wait for a doggone approval? Well, and, Gerald, what they do, though, in the VA's defense is they do take those cases on a case-by-case basis. So, in general, if it's not life-threatening, uh, that 30, 30, 60 days might come into play. But if, if a veteran needs care sooner than that at risk of their life, they will make amends for that. Um, and, and certainly if, if they don't, then we need to get uh, a senator or congressman involved to make sure that that person gets the care that they need. Absolutely, uh, because I know uh, sometimes, uh, you know, you don't know what's going on. I mean, a veteran, not a doggone doctor. Uh, you might be having chest pains, but it may not be your heart, but you don't know it's not your heart. Uh, so you run over to the hospital, and they say, well, no, your heart's all right. It must be something else, and... And, you know, I, actually, I had that happen to me several times, and it turned out to be my gallbladder, which I ended up getting it out. But, uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, all the indications are you're having a spell with your heart, so you don't know. And according to what the behavior, you know, they say, well, heck, you just went over, there wasn't nothing wrong with your heart, so it wasn't life-threatening. Right, right. And I, and I think in the in the VA Medical Center's defense, they certainly would say that any veteran can always walk into urgent care or, or emergency care and get triaged right there. Uh, it's the follow-up visit.
that, that they're that they're interested in trying to accommodate. And and if they can't accommodate that person in a reasonable amount of time based on their medical and professional uh, 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 ideology, uh, they are supposed to uh, afford them their opportunity to seek care outside the VA medical center on a pre-approved basis. Yeah, uh, you know, I think it needs some work on it, but it's still uh, better than nothing. I mean, you know, uh, you used to, you didn't have a choice. And uh, so in that respect, uh, it's something we can hopefully improve on, I'd say that. Well, I think, I think uh, you know, certainly President Trump is putting putting things in the right direction, and and the major service organizations are happy about that, and and certainly I think uh, he needs to keep his promise to veterans uh, that he that he that he put out there during the campaign, and 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 ensure that all the promises are kept, uh, especially the uh, the good old appeals backlog when it comes to disability compensation claims. The appeals backlog uh, seems to be getting fatter and fatter. It's kind of a roller coaster effect, uh, but uh, it's getting bad again, folks, and so. Uh, I encourage everyone out there listening, whether it's now or later on in the podcast, call your congressmen, call your senators, and keep keep pushing for uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs to receive more funding to hire more employees and to educate those employees so that they make the right decisions so so we don't have to appeal these claims. Oh, that'd be nice. Uh, you know, I think the appeal process has been abused by the VA, uh, they seem to use it to stonewall the veteran because it's so easy once it gets up there where they make decisions and they decide it's more than they want to handle. They just uh, remand it back to the regional office and you get in that crazy uh, ring around the rosy type of deal. Uh, uh, you know, and it's hard to get out of that loop. It's difficult to get out of it, but uh, certainly uh, you, you can have your, your your claims expedited, advanced on the on the docket with respect to the Board of Veterans Appeals, and certainly expedited at the regional offices, uh, which which is pretty successful. I've I've had some good cases where I can get them expedited, but it's it's always it's always the uh, uh, specific black and white rules with the uh, CFR and the M21 manual. Unless you're uh, a certain age. You're not going to get your claim expedited. I, mean, I think locally, at the regional office, at the regional offices, it's 75 years old. Uh, excuse me, at the regional offices, I believe it's either 85 or 90 years old. But the Board of Veterans Appeals is 75 years old. Now, if you don't meet the age requirements, you can still get an expedite based on financial hardship. But, but, but the the VA regional offices and the BVA are even getting a lot more strict on that. It used to be you could fill out a financial status report a VA 45655 and, and demonstrate it and the VA would, would take your word for it but now the VA is getting pretty strict on that they want they want documentation of eviction notices or foreclosure or car repossessions uh months and months behind in bills so uh and I think some veterans took advantage of that and caused the VA to do that but I think it's getting a lot more strict on that and then of course terminal illness or or a real severe health illness that could result in death has always been something that the VA would look at in expediting these claims, but but unless you're unless you're in one of those special categories, you're, you're just like everyone else. Unfortunately, you're, you're waiting your turn, and 
And you're right, Gerald, when, when you get into claims that are on appeal, they go to the Board of Veterans' Appeals, they come back to uh, uh, the regional office on remand, or maybe they're appealed to the Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims, and they re- remand it back to the Board of Veterans' Appeals. It, it can be years and years and years. Now, you never lose that effective date, that original effective date of claim, but, but the problem is, is a lot of these veterans are, are elderly or in poor health, and, and if they die and they don't have a spouse to carry on with the claim, the claim will die with that person. Yeah, and that's really unfortunate. Uh, uh, doggone it. Uh, it just, you know, the heirs should be able to pick up and, and take that claim, uh, not only the, the spouse, because a lot of times, the veteran and the spouse uh, both pass before a claim gets adjudicated then. And uh, yep. that's yep. a and sad that, deal. And that's true, Gerald. And, and that's that's where a good power of attorney comes in, whether it's a national service officer or an agent like myself or an attorney. If, if those power of attorneys are in close relationship with those claimants, and if, if they're made aware of that situation where uh, the, the veteran, if it doesn't have a spouse and is, is near death, uh, there are people that you can call up to the Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs that can get those claims done a lot faster than normal. Um, uh-huh. So unfortunately it does happen, though, where claims do die with veterans. And, and of course, if there's not a spouse, uh, then then they would die with the veteran. But again... If there is a spouse, and I think that's important to know, is, is a lot of veterans, they they, uh, they get frustrated and they say, well, I think the VA is just waiting for me to die anyway. They don't want to pay. And and I ask them, well, are you married? And they say yes. And I said, well, your spouse can pick up the ball from where you left off. Of course, that's not a real great consolation because, you know, he'll be dead, so he really won't know. But but the, at least they have some solace in knowing that I'm there to help their spouse along the way. You know, uh, uh, John, I've run into something which, I, in a way, I find surprising, and then in another way, I don't. I've had uh, several veteran friends that have passed, and their claim wasn't, uh, uh, you know, finalized. And uh, I talk to their spouses and say, now, look, you can pick this claim up and still keep it alive and going. And they don't want to pull with it. They've been through such a hassle, you know, with their husband getting the claim to wherever point it's at. Usually it's in the appeal stage when they pass. But... uh, uh, and and you know how com- complicated the, the system is for a layperson. They just uh, don't, and and a lot of these spouses just say, "Oh, I'm I'm tired of the whole mess," and uh, uh, they've been disappoint, uh, disappointed so many times that. Uh, they just throw in the hat when their spouse dies, and and that uh, or the veteran dies, uh, um, and that's a, a sad situation there. Well, in general, what you what you got is is these spouses of these veterans that that pass away. 
um, they're dealing they're they're dealing with the loss of their spouse. They're grieving, uh, losing a person who, and oftentimes they've been with that person for thirty, forty, fifty, sometimes sixty years. Yeah. And so so they're, they're grieving. They're dealing with with the person being being out of their life at this point in time, and then all of a sudden they have to face uh, the Veterans Administration, and sometimes they have to face it alone. And they watch from from afar as as far as uh, how their spouse dealt with it and how frustrating it was. So I can understand why why they would not want to get involved with that. Uh, my my effort is if if I was in that situation, I certainly would respect the feelings of that that surviving spouse. I, I would do everything I could to let him or her know that I would be bearing the brunt, if not the entire brunt, of the appeal status and. And uh, if they just let me run with it, then I would. But, but I hear what you're saying, Gerald, I, and you can't blame them. You just cannot blame them at all. Well, that's true. You can't because we know what hassle it is. I mean, it's it's not an it's not a battle you want to readily jump into. <laughs> and uh, uh, like I said, a lot of spouses. They uh, most of them, uh, uh, their husband was uh, like in a lot of households, or you know they they make a lot of the important decisions, and so the spouses are are uh, sitting there, uh, and their their decision maker is is out of the picture now, and that's up to them. They become decision maker and. And there's a lot of lot of things going on. They don't want to pull with that crazy BA. You know, Gerald, the, the way I get around that though uh, is is more often than not that surviving spouse has children, and those children are adult children. And you're always going to find at least one or two kids that are going to be willing to pick up the ball for for me. So certainly, if I was to take over a case in that situation. I would try to spare the surviving spouse as much of the rhetoric as possible, uh, not alienate the spouse, but certainly certainly try to spare him or her from that as much as possible. But I always found it really beneficial to work strictly with uh, the children or even the grandchildren, the adult grandchildren. Yeah. Uh, there's always someone that's willing to pick up the ball and get me what I need and get me doctor's opinions and get me documents, get me whatever I need to, to win the claim. And so... Uh, in those cases where there's no children or grandchildren, uh, oftentimes there's a friend or a cousin or a relative. I mean, there's always there's always someone out in the community I have found as an advocate that's willing to be my go-to person. Yeah, I think that's probably the right route to take, uh, John, because uh, the children are, are actually, um, of course, by the time they pass. Children's up there, you know, in our thirties and forties, and uh, uh, they're capable of doing it. And some of them got even got college education, where a lot of your older veterans don't have college education. So they're they're actually the children more capable of carrying on the torch here. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's why I brought that up. Is is um, doing this 26 years? It, it it's very rare that I haven't been able to lean on a family member rather than the actual surviving spouse. And I'm certainly more than happy to work directly with the surviving spouse. 
um, but but it's it's a very difficult. Uh, 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 well, it, it's very difficult for them to lose their 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 spouse that they've been with for many years, and then yeah. have to face the face the VA head on like that. It's uh, it's a bad deal, um, but uh, you know it's just oh my, it just goes with the works, I guess. Uh, so, do you see the claims uh, uh, picking up? Uh, you see that there's there's more and more uh, veterans entering into the claims uh, side of things. I think it's uh, I think it's flattening. I think it's flattening out, guys. Um, you know, and and I think certainly when you when you have a major conflict like we did with. Iraq and Afghanistan and, and the discharging uh, soldiers, sailors, and airmen and Marines, uh, you're going to get an influx of claims. Um, you know, as we get farther and farther out from Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and the military is, uh, uh, at least under past President Obama, uh, the military has been depleted. So you had a lot of discharging veterans at that time. So, uh, I, you know, I would say three or four years ago it was just nuts, and it's still nuts to a certain degree. But uh, I think it's flattened out, you know, specifically with respect to what I do. Um, I'm I'm very busy myself, but I think in general the claims uh, claims process is flattening out, just based on the fact that uh, we're we're on the other side of the uh, Iraq Afghanistan conflict. Yeah, you could be right there, uh, although I would think. That the um, there's still a large number of them that haven't been affected yet uh, by, by their their uh, time in the service, and they may uh, you know in five or ten more years uh, you may see another group of them hitting the claim system. Yeah, I think but, certainly. Especially when when laws change, right, guys? And when when laws change with the VA, and yeah. it opens up the door for additional benefits. Uh, for example, when Agent Orange was was uh, uh, when we're talking about Agent Orange in Vietnam and all the other parts of the world that we've now discovered that Agent Orange was used. Now, veterans who who may not have actually served in Vietnam didn't qualify for the presumptive exposure to Agent Orange, but now all of a sudden, those that served in in Thailand, Utapau, Thailand, the DMZ on Korea, uh, other parts of the United States that uh, was recognized as Agent Orange exposure. Now these veterans are becoming qualified to file for disabilities that are uh, presumptive Agent Orange, just like they were for in-country Vietnam veterans. So, so you're right, Gerald. As laws change uh, for the better, it opens up uh, a whole new window of different veterans, just like with. Uh, uh, the presumptive uh, service-connected disabilities with respect to uh, the Middle East, the, the veterans who served in the Middle East. Um, so that that's another window. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, what additional windows open. Um, I know there's been a lot of talk about uh, hypertension, high blood pressure hypertension being put on the presumptive list to Agent Orange exposure. Um, certainly I'm all for that. I think any way we can help our uh, Vietnam veterans and any other veterans who are exposed to Agent Orange, we want to do that. But but I can, I can tell you one thing: if you add 
uh, hypertension, high blood pressure to that Agent Orange presumptive list, that's going to open up a whole broad spectrum of claims. Uh, you want to talk about an influx of claims, it's going to go crazy. Uh, oh, because, yes. uh, Hypertension is a very, very common type of disability, um, and there's so many offshoot disabilities, residual secondary disabilities to hypertension, stroke, heart disease, all kinds of things. So um, if, if, if hypertension is added to the presumptive list to Agent Orange, um, our country better expect to get our tax dollars out there because that's what it's going to take to pay these compensation claims. Uh, yes, it will. Uh, there's, I would like to see the VA, you know, uh, they should have the VA fully funded, and uh, uh, they don't. They have to allocate so much money each year towards VA. Uh, but I think uh, it should be fully funded but properly monitored. Um, the VA has not been properly mo- monitored in the uh, stewardship of, of the funds that they're in charge of. And uh, that's been problematic and and, and uh, I'm sure costly towards veterans. Uh, but uh, every time you get, try to get Congress to do something, they say, well, the funds aren't there. And uh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say one thing that uh, uh, President Trump had, had, had done is he cut the budgets of of almost every federal office except three of them. One of them was the VA, and the other one was the Department of Defense. So, yeah. so and I'm not here to, to sing the praises of, of President Donald Trump here, but, but you know, I think it is important to point that out, that uh, the VA's uh, budget was not slashed. It's one, one of only three federal entities where their budget was not slashed. So I think that, to some degree, shows a commitment. But, uh, yeah, if you fully fund the VA... Certainly the watchdogs have to make sure the money's being spent correctly. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, we'll see how that plays out. It'll be interesting. It will be. And uh, with President Trump, like you, I don't want to toot his own, but uh, I can see that becoming a possibility because we've had so much trouble with the VA and the proper funding of the health care as well as the claim system um, uh, that something needs to be done. And, uh, and of course, proper uh, monitoring that uh, it, have to be audited every year, I think, or maybe every three or four months, every quarter, uh, uh, before you know, so they could catch something before it got so far out of hand. Right, right. Well, and, and that's that's the job of the Office of the Inspector General. Certainly, is to to uh, monitor the Department of Veterans Affairs and and uh, audit them as needed. And and uh, uh, to some degree, I think that's that that's been that's coming a long ways. I've said this before. I started in this vocation in 1992. 
and and I compare to what it was then to what it is now. It's like night and day. As, it, as troublesome as it is today, and as as much work as there needs to be done today, um, it, it was quite a bit worse uh, back in in the 90s. I can tell you that. Um, yeah. And, and and again, certainly with the, uh, the the conflicts in Iraq and in Afghanistan and the discharging veterans, uh, uh, for reserves, National Guard, active duty personnel. Um, there's just a lot, a lot of claimants out there, and and I think there there still are going to be a lot more claimants. But I I think that that tide has quelled to some degree. But uh, again, as as these new windows open, as these these laws and regulations become more liberal and and open up windows to uh, file for more benefits, and they fall into different qualification classes, that that's going to allow for for more claims to be made, and and certainly it's going to take sharp. Uh, power of attorneys, national service officers, attorneys and agents to be able to to uh, waddle through that muck that the VA throws out at you and, uh, and and work those claims the way they need to be worked. Do you think, uh, do you see any changes coming in the claim system? I mean, the claims process. Uh, uh, that could be beneficial to the veterans. I think historically, one thing that jumps out at me uh, is the FDC, the fully developed claims that the VA introduced. Uh, oh, I would say five, six years ago. That seems to have done quite a bit of good. I know years before that, they tried different methods to try to to, to eliminate the, the the claims backlog. But this fully developed claim uh, statute has seemed to be working pretty good and that basically is is a situation where if a veteran files a claim uh, that initial package is a full claim it's got the original application it's got the DD-214 it's got the, the private medical records you put it all in at one time and you you ask for it to be adjudicated as a fully developed claim and by doing that you're saying I will not submit anything else until I get my first decision because then what that does for the VA is they don't have to they're not obligated to follow certain due process rights under the Veterans Claims Assistance Act. And so basically what they do is they take the application, they look at it as a one-stop shop, they call the veteran in for a compensation exam, and they get it done a lot quicker. Um, so that's, yeah. an example. that's an example of what the VA has done in the past. Uh, currently, Gerald and John, what they're, what they're looking at now, and I don't know all the specifics of this, I read the law, the law proposal one point in time, but I'm always the type of advocate. Laws change, regulations change, uh, proposals to eliminate backlog change. So I always wait until the final draft is done and it's voted on by by Congress and Senate and passed. But but essentially what what's going on is uh, the big three organizations, the American Legion, DAV, and the VFW, uh, have have promoted. Uh, uh, a solution, if you will, to to try to eliminate the uh, the claims backlog with the Board of Veterans' Appeals. It's going to give the veteran, the appellant in this case, a couple of other different options to pursue uh, with respect to the Board of Veterans' Appeals, which essentially would eliminate the wait time for those particular appeals. In turn, would would allow for quicker adjudication of other appeals that are much more complicated. So I, I know that. President Trump and, and, and Secretary of the VA, uh, Dr. Shulkin, and, and the, the veterans organizations are trying to get that through. 
from what I can tell, it, it, it's not anywhere near getting through. Um, hopefully within the next year or two, but um, it'll be interesting to see exactly how all that plays out. So there are efforts. Uh, that seems to be the biggest thing on the on the radar right now. Well, yeah, I, and that's a good thing. Now, fully developed Glendale, uh, and I know of some veterans that's capitalized on that and done done okay. Uh, but there's been some that, uh, of course, uh, didn't do so well. But it's uh, I'm trying. To, I think probably uh, uh, they didn't understand the full scope of it or thought they had all the data they needed and when actuality they didn't. Uh, but uh, with someone that knows how to work a fully developed claim, I think it's uh, actually the way to go. It's sure a shortcut. <laughs> it, gets a little, you know, it gets a little complicated. I know that you have to meet certain parameters to fall under that fully developed claim for example, if you already have another claim pending or if you have an appeal pending and you submit an additional claim and you try to go as a fully developed claim, it won't work. It, yeah. It's got to be a standalone claim with nothing else pending in the background. Yeah. Uh, the, other, the other thing, guys, is, is with fully developed claims, and this is good for the listeners to know, if you submit a fully developed claim, uh, you cannot submit anything after that until you get the first decision. So if, if you put in that fully developed claim and if you put in one piece of evidence, one medical record, a testimonial, a dependency form, something, that's going to knock it off that fully developed claim track and it'll go back to the regular processing, which would, would likely add four or five months to the claim probably. Yes, uh, or longer. Uh Oh, yeah, I think it had more than that. But uh, at least it's something. I think if they would work on it and not be so strict with it, it would work better for the veteran and VA. Maybe uh, have them let you add uh, evidence two or three times or something like that because that could be necessary. I uh but if you had all everything that you needed for a fully developed claim at one time and submitted it, it to me that's a, a no-brainer. That'd be the way to go. A, a good way to do it, guys, is 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 first of all get that intent to file put in. An intent to file effectively protects your data claim with respect to the VA. And as long as you formalize that claim within a year of that intent to file, any effective date of award would go back to that intent to file. See, so if you file that intent to file, and then you start working on that fully developed claim, and that's going to include the original application of 21-526EZ. Anyone that's been around the, the VA enough is going to know what that is. That's, your, that's the heart of your application. You're going to want to supplement that with your DD-214. Now, now, this is all assuming... This is a brand new claim where you've never filed a claim before. But again, you got that 21-526EZ, which is the original claim. You got your DD-214 preferably certified. Now, the VA does have the ability to verify a certification through the military, but it's always better if it's certified because that saves the VA having to do that. So get a certified DD-214 
Do you have a copy of your service medical records? Include that. Do you have any private medical records? Uh, and by that, I mean any records outside the military and or the VA medical center. Get all of that together, too. Get as many testimonials together as you can. If you have a wife and kids or a husband and kids, make sure you file the dependency form with that. So just make that claim full, fully developed claim, get everything together, and then send it in. Uh, you'll be surprised how quick that thing moves. You should get a compensation appointment within 60 days, and then get a decision within 60 days after that. That's how it's supposed to work. I've seen it work that way. Um, but, you know, that's just a quick rundown of how you want to do it. I wouldn't expect anyone to remember that. I think, I think certainly education is the key. Um, get in contact with someone like myself or, or any uh, accredited appeals agent or power of attorney, and they should be able to walk you through that too. Oh, yes, I agree. Uh, yeah, that's when you need a really do need a specialist and let you, you're up to date on how to do all this stuff, uh, uh, someone that can help you. Uh, Put it all together so when you submit it, uh, everything's correct. Uh, and too many people just don't know uh, what's all the requirements in a claim. Yeah, and, and what I try to do, Gerald, is, is when, a, when a veteran calls me out of the blue and and says, I need help, that's the first thing I need to do is get a background on on what that veteran did in the past. Uh, sometimes I'll get a copy of the VA claims file. Uh, oftentimes I'll get copies of VA decisions that they've received in the past. And, and many times if, if it was just prepared the correct way in the beginning, that, that claimant would probably have been service-connected much sooner than later. And that, that's not a reflection on the claimant. Uh, just that I've been doing this so long, it, it just, you see these things and you just kind of shake your head and you just wish if only you could have got your hands on that claim before. So I guess the point I'm making is is any ad, or any any veteran out there or, or claimant that's looking to file a claim, if you're intent on doing it yourself, uh, good luck. Uh, there are people out there that have done it themselves and they, they did a good job, but that's very few. Ninety-eight percent of the time, um, you, you really need someone uh, uh, working with you on this and 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 making sure it's all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. Yeah, I agree. I I do know some there to add it that have been successful with the uh, fully developed claim, but uh, not too often you hear of them. Uh, usually, at you know. By the time they submitted it, they said, oh, I needed to put this or that. And, uh, so you need uh, you need a bouncing board to talk to or run it by or, or just, put, you know, pay someone to assist you putting the thing together. It would certainly be worth it. It's it's the smallest things that that can just eliminate months off, off the pending status of your claim, just the smallest things. Um, yeah. So uh, it's unreal. But uh anyway that's uh and I think that that's going to 
keep progressing. Hopefully they'll lighten up on it where they're not so strict, John. I I think that would be helpful to the veterans. But uh, then they'll, you know, I don't know if they'll win, but I think they really need to lighten well, up on they, that. They need, they need to adhere to their own rules and regulations. Reasonable doubt, as likely as not. Relative equipoise, it all comes into play. All yeah. of those things are designed to be in favor of the veteran. Tie goes to the runner. If you've got probative evidence against you, but you've got equally probative evidence for you, it's called relative equipoise. Tie goes to the runner. And so when you're talking about being strict, Gerald, I, I, that's where I think that the VA needs to uh, give more of the reasonable doubt to the veteran rather than playing hardball and, and going out to try to seek a differing opinion, uh, rather just look at the evidence of record and, and determine who has the most probative value. Does reasonable doubt apply to the client and grant the claim? Rather than just uh, erroneously denying the claim, then the veteran's got to file the notice of disagreement, then we got to wait for the statement of case, and then we file the Form 9s of the Board of Veterans' Appeals and, and you know, Five years down the road, we might get a hearing, and so it's yeah, You're frustrating. Right. That is frustrating, and uh, uh, I I don't know why they want to be so hard nosed about it. They'll say if if they can't find what records you need, you need to tell them where they're at and what records you want. And uh, uh, how do you know where they're at (laughs) or what you need? If you ain't seen them, you don't know. It's up to the federal government to be able to tell us where repositories are at, where records are kept. Uh, and, and it's not up to the veteran to know that. Obviously, the National Personal Records Center in St. Louis, the Records Management Center, they carry uh, the bulk of the records. Uh, there's other repositories throughout the country. Um, but uh, um, for the most part, those records are available, and, and it shouldn't be incumbent upon the veteran or the claimant to have to tell the government where those records are as far as retiring the records. Now, if if the veteran claims that they were treated at a, a specific hospital or clinic, whether it's overseas or not, yeah, then it is responsible for the veteran to say, um, I was treated in Okinawa on such and such date or something to that effect, or Pusan, Korea, or uh, uh, Fort Meade, Maryland, 1982, or something to that effect. So memory is always good, but uh, um, the VA does try to help the veterans, but for the most part... Uh, there's a lot of roadblocks probably that, that don't need to be up there. Yes, there is. But uh, uh, trying to figure out what what and what what and where uh, things are, what you need and where it's at, so you yeah. can tell them where to look in their home files is, is kind of a... Uh, that's rough. John, you have yeah, left out the joint records. You know, have you left out the JSRC and DC? 
Say again, John. You ever use that bunch? You ever use the JSRC out of DC? Oh. You ever use that bunch? Yeah, the, the, what he's referring to is the JS Joint Services Records Research Center, JSRRC. That's the Joint Services Records Research Center. I've never, you know, the way the structure is set up, that organization deals directly with federal entities, in this case the Department of Veterans Affairs. So essentially what, what John's referring to the JSRC is that if, if a veteran, for example, files a claim for post-traumatic stress disorder due to stressful incidents on active duty, I'm not talking sexual trauma, I'm talking about combat experiences or, or training incidences or something particularly horrific like that. Um, something something is logged. Something is logged in an official yeah, record, like a log or something. Yeah. Yeah, and so if the client doesn't have anything on their DD two fourteen that allows the VA to waive stressor verification, like a Purple Heart or a CIB or CAR or Medal of Valor, Bronze Star with V device is another one. They go to this organization called the JSRRC, Joint Services Records Research Center. And the VA gives them as much information as the as the claimant provides them. And the JSRC does their due diligence and researches and says, okay, uh, did this incident as likely as not happen? And the JSRC sometimes will come back and say, not enough information to tell, or we do have enough information, we cannot verify the incident. Or they say, we do have enough information and we can verify the incident happened. So that's essentially the the primary responsibility of the JSRRC. But I have seen uh, them I, in I, the past. I, yeah. Yeah, I I've been aware of them for a number of years. Um, you know, back in the day, John, they they uh, it was, the the parameters to get stressors verified were a lot more strict, and the JSRC were, were a much bigger player in that type of thing. Uh, the verification of stressors have gotten quite a bit more laxed in the favor of the veteran. If they can reasonably conclude that where the veteran was located, the time, the date, uh, the location, they can usually verify if there was a particular air assault at that time or mortars or some sort of firefight or something to that effect. And so the JSRC has, has gotten uh, an easier job, if, if, if you will, than the olden days when they really had to dig into ship's logs and, and, and Army personnel records and things of that sort. So it, it's gotten quite a bit easier to, to, to verify these stressful incidences and give them more of the benefit of the doubt to the veteran. And and getting back to what we were talking about before, guys, that's an example, again, where the laws, rules, and regulations have been liberalized by the VA. Uh, you know, believe it or not, some good things have happened along the way. And, and, and getting those stressors uh, more easily verified and given more reasonable doubt was huge, was really huge for a lot of veterans who are claiming PTSD, anxiety, depression, acquired psychiatric disorder, secondary to stressors in the military. Well, I can see that where that would really come in handy, especially for the ones coming back from the Middle East. Um, 
the ones that was over in Iraq and Syria and all them other places there, Afghanistan, uh, they were in a con- I mean constant uh, fear for their lives, weren't they? Absolutely, and 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 every person's different. You know, it, you you can you can suffer from. And I'm not a don't get me wrong. I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist. I, but doing this 25, 26 years, I, I like to think I know a little bit about it. Uh, but but you can put. Uh, uh, a veteran in their military service uh, in, in a combat zone. Uh, they may not have actually been in, in combat, um, but, but just the fear of hostility, that, that, that's considered a stressful incident, not knowing if this was the last day on earth. I mean, just everyone's different. We all deal with our, our experiences in different ways. You could have one person that, that saw the worst there is about war and, and they live long, happy lives and they never gave it a second thought. And then you could have one person that, that was in a area of hostility for a day and never got over it and their life changed forever. So it, the human mind is, 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 uh, is interesting in that we all adapt to it in certain ways. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, that goes with anything. Uh, what affects one person may not affect another or affect them differently, you know. Like you say, some people might just slip it off and say, well, that's the way it is. And other people just tend to uh, dwell on it, and it lets it affect their lives. Yep, yep. So, but... Well, guys, I, I, I was... Uh... You know, I was just trying to think before the radio show started what uh, what I could bring to the table, and I think that uh, just what we're talking about right now is 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 important for just any listener to to realize that uh, if you've never filed for a disability compensation claim with the VA, yet you've always wanted to, but you've always kind of pushed it under the rug, uh, call me. You know, I'll, I'll give out my number before the end of the show, and and uh, we'll see if there's anything that you're entitled to. Uh, the main theme is, is if you didn't have a disability going into the military and, and you had it shortly after the military or, or suffered while in the military, that's the basis for direct service connection. And direct service connection is really one of only a few ways to get service connected. I mean, there's presumptive service-connected disabilities like we talked about with Agent Orange and, and the Persian Gulf War Syndrome and the atomic veterans and when I talk about atomic veterans, I'm talking about World War II veterans who were exposed to radiation, Nagasaki, Hiroshima, and certainly during the Korean time period with the atmospheric testing. Yes, and they did a lot of that, too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And, and, and a lot of veterans have passed on since then, and, and at the time they passed, they had no clue that it was related to their atmospheric testing, and it, it's these widows that are coming coming down the road later on. Um, I, I get that every once in a while where, where a widow will call me up, and her husband died 20, 30 years ago of, of uh, a, a cancer that's presumptive to uh, uh, radiation exposure, uh, atomic veterans, and, and they had no idea they were entitled to a monthly uh, allowance of about $1,500 a month. 
Yeah, oh, that's, so that's really that's, something, too. Yeah, it, it's called dependency and indemnity compensation, and it's afforded to uh, spouses of uh, surviving spouses of veterans that uh, died due to or as a result of a service-related disability is one way, uh, or be 100% service-connected for at least 10 years and die for any reason. Yeah. Or die on act, or die on active duty, obviously. So, uh, dependency and indemnity compensation for surviving spouses is is a is a topic that they should be very familiar with. I know a veteran that was in the uh, atomic uh, where they was testing out there, where Nevada or Utah there. Yep. And and uh, he said they had trenches, and they went. Different levels. The trench was at an angle, and it went from your just your head above the ground to you know, then your chest, half your chest, and then so on and so forth. Just stair stepped, and he said they had them lined up all in this trench, and uh, uh, when they set them nukes off them test off down there and and uh he fought them for years and years and years he had all sorts of problems and finally he did win his claim uh but he didn't live long after he after he won it but uh, uh they didn't want to pay them guys nothing and, and a lot and of perished, uh, you know, uh, passed on and, and never was awarded any benefits. Much like, uh, since we're on the topic, atomic veterans, uh, they have to get service connection on a presumptive basis, they have to be suffering from a very specific type of disability, very specific types of cancers most of the time. And, and I'm guessing that what, what your friend probably had was a, uh, a disability that may not have been on that list. And so he was probably uh, responsible to get a doctor to be able to provide medical information to say that it's as likely as not, or, or at least it is a fact that this type of disability is related to uh, radiation exposure, um, independent medical opinions like that. So... But it should have been a slam dunk if it was a disability automatically on that presumptive list. Yeah. I'm assuming it wasn't. So, uh, but yeah, those can be tough claims to win. Uh, the VA is responsible to take those cases on a case by case basis for disabilities that don't fall under that presumptive list. But if the case is made, uh, they do have to uh, uh, they have to look at it pretty closely. But unless you have a uh, uh, a medical opinion backed up with sound medical theory and and expertise, it, it's it's going to be a, a, a tough claim to win. Well, yeah, it sure would. I think it was uh, a blood disorder or a, a bone disorder, bone cancer or something. I don't remember what it was, but it was uh, it was not good. Right. But, he he finally did win, but uh, like you said, he had to have all kinds of doctors and things. Right. You want to go ahead and give your phone number and uh, contact information, uh, John? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
John Dorley is my name, D-O-R-L-E. I live up here in Minnesota. Um, my phone number is area code 651-303-3062. That's 651-303-3062. My email is, is benefitsagent at comcast.net. That's benefits, plural, benefitsagent, A-G-E-N-T, at comcast.net. Dot .net. Well, you might get some calls. Yeah, and 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 if anybody can call, um, even if it's a friend of a family member or the veteran themselves, feel free to to call me. Generally, what I do is a, a no obligation consult right over the phone, get the basic information, and find out what's going on with any claims if, if they're pending or if you've never filed a claim or anywhere from they've never filed a claim up to the most complicated claim that, that that's mired in appeals with the Board of Veterans Appeals and the regional office, I I, I can handle them all. So uh, feel free to call. We'll, we'll figure it out. We'll dissect the issues. And, and one thing I'll, I'll always say is I'll be completely honest with, with the veteran. If, if you don't have a case, I'll tell you. Um, course then what you're doing is you're adjudicating the claim at that level so I try not to do that but I would just give them the chances of winning a particular type of claim and I'm pretty liberal there is many cases out there that that I can't turn into something but but you'll get a straight shooter with me I'll tell you exactly what what my thoughts are on the viability and the probate of value of any any case that's going on Well, you've been doing this for how long, John? Since 92, so what's that, 25 years? My land, you got the experience. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a great job. You know, you get a lot of self-satisfaction out of helping people. There, there's nothing more enjoyable, and this, this happens a lot, and, and I take great pride in it, but there's nothing more enjoyable than having a, a, a decision review officer from the VA call you uh, as the power of attorney and, and explain to me that we've won the case, uh, whatever case we won, and, and, and I get to call up the claimant and, and tell them that. And, you know, it just changes their lives, and it just makes you happy doing that. So uh, it's a great job. I enjoy doing it. Yeah, I can see where it would be very, very gratifying. Um, well, when, you know, when you when you call up a veteran who's been living check to check for most of their life, all of a sudden you tell them they're going to get a retroactive check of $180,000 tax-free and then a, a check of about $3,000 a month for the rest of their life. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's shocking for them. They They, they almost don't believe it. You know, they've been uh, fighting yeah. so hard. They've been fighting so hard for all these benefits along the way. And I don't want to give the impression that every single claim turns out that way. I mean, we know that that doesn't happen. But but uh, it, it's just shocking to them because they don't know what to do anymore. They've been fighting the VA for so long, and now all of a sudden the fight's over. Then what do they do? So it's, it, it, it can be a, a – yeah, it's an interesting, interesting job, and, and it's fun to do. Well, there's a 
You know, there's a lot of veterans out here hurting while they're waiting on their claims. Like you said, sometimes it can take three, four, five, ten years, sometimes 15 or 20. But, uh, well, yep. And, and again, if they have a financial hardship and they can back up that financial hardship or, or if their, their illness is, is terminal or, or, or close to that, then, then we can get it expedited. Um, or again, that age, uh, the requirements I went through earlier, uh, the regional office, they usually look at about 90 years old. The Board of Veterans Appeals, they look at 75 years old. If, if, you, if you're at that age, you, you can have your claim expedited, advanced on the docket with the Board of Veterans Appeals is what they call it. So, um, But, yeah, unfortunately, you know, for, for, for guys like us three, uh, if we don't fall into those parameters and, and, and Gerald, I know you're going through that, it's like a pinball. You bounce from the regional office to the BVA to the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, back to the BVA, back to the regional office, back to the BVA, and, and so – you know, you're not getting any younger, so I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And I'm afraid that happens all too often. You know, I was talking to a lady there at the uh, Appeals Management Center, and uh, I said, my lands, how many times my claim got to come through here? It's been about four or five times. And she said, I've seen some come through as many as 13 to 15 times. <laughs> can you imagine? Yeah. I, I, I have a hard time comprehending that. Because uh, each time is about two years, you know. I sure sat on them a long time. Yeah, and certainly every case is like a snowflake. They all have different parameters set aside for them. Um, but I, I just I just can't understand why these claims are taking so long. Um, I always put it on the power of attorney. Anyone that's listened to me before, um, they know that I put it on myself as the power of attorney. I put it on the power of attorney. If you've got a good, good power of attorney, um, there, there isn't any reason those claims should be bouncing around the country like that. I, I don't feel, of course, you know, I don't know the specifics of each case, but my goal is to win the thing right off the bat, not have to appeal. But if we have to appeal, I certainly don't want it to go to the Board of Veterans' Appeals where you're going to be waiting a lot longer. I pride myself in not having to go to the Board of Veterans' Appeals. I try to win it at the local regional office. I try to talk to the decision review officers, the directors, the assistant directors, the Veterans Service Center managers, and say, hey, this is what we got. And I'm nice about it, but, you know, you guys want to send this to the Board of Veterans' Appeals, we've got some pretty good probative evidence. And if that's not good enough, if you just hold on for 60 days, I'll get you another medical report. But but don't send it to the Board of Veterans' Appeals. If you're intent on doing that, then I'll just ask for a hearing at the local regional office. That'll keep it from the Board of Veterans' Appeals. That's just yeah. wasting your time and my time. So just hold on to the case. You know, you can talk to these VA officials like that, and they see common sense, and they'll work with you 99 times out of 100. But the point being is that when you've got these appeals bouncing all over the country between the Appeals Management Center, the Board of Veterans' Appeals, the, the court, um, it just makes me wonder exactly what the power of attorney was thinking. I, I don't know. I mean, just it just baffles me. <laughs> well, it's hard to say. It's uh 
it can turn into a complex situation and when the claim is not really that complex. That's what I'd say a lot of times. Yep. And uh, the BA is always wanting something you don't have or don't know where's at. <laughs> I hear you, Gerald. I hear you. But... But I, uh, you know, I sure appreciate being on the show as, as people that listen to this on a regular basis. I get on every, you know, once every couple months, and and uh, uh, I think I think what I what I try to explain to the veterans that it never gets old is is simply you're your own best advocate. Uh, put as much effort into your claim as you would anything else that's important to you, because these benefits are long lasting. They'll last for the rest of your life. They'll probably last when you're dead and your wife carries on and it lasts for your children. So put a lot of effort into it and don't do it by yourself. At least get the consultation of an expert like myself. Even if you don't retain me, even if you don't retain me on appeal, at least call. There's no cost to call. Well, there's a, A lot to this claims process, and the main thing is not to get discouraged and and uh, try to do as much research as you can yourself. And the more research you do, the better the understanding you're going to have of the process also. And when you realize that, uh, hey, I need some help... <laughs> Then you need to look yep. around and find a, a good uh, veterans advocate and a claims agent, and uh, and uh, talk to them. And there's several around the country, so you know you you don't have to pick the first one you talk to. You can call around. Get get an advocate with some seasoning. Um. And, and unfortunately, that rules out most advocates who have one to three years under their belt. But I, I would say my advice would be get an advocate who has some seasoning. And and you can have an advocate with a high intelligence, can quote M21 manual, CFR, can put the fanciest uh, legal brief together that you've ever seen. And you want that. But you also want an advocate who has that rapport with the VA regional office. Has that uh, respect. That's right. And is able to to talk to those decision review officers without alienating them, without uh, banging them over the head with a mallet. I I guess I like to pride myself on a well-balanced advocacy, whereas I know the laws, rules, and regulations as well as anyone, but I also have that ability to talk to these VA regional offices. And, And there's about 55, 60 VA regional offices in this country. I mean, Every single one of them has has a different personality. And within those regional offices, you have a lot of different decision review officers, directors, assistant directors, managers. They all have different personalities. And and, uh, if you can talk to them, that's half the battle. Well, yes, it is. And being a good communicator, uh, uh, you know, like you say, if you call up the regional office and start 
yappity yap 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 you're going to do this and according to that and all, uh, it, you know it just don't work uh, uh you got to be a sensible uh, uh communicator and that that always works out to your benefit as a rule um, i found that they'll at least try to steer you in the right way or try to work with you if they can uh, you know, and if they can't, they'll explain the reason they can't. Uh, so, uh, you know, every every claim is different in its own way, and I would still like to see them start grouping claims in a group, but I don't think that'll ever happen. Uh, but... Uh, that would certainly cut down on the backlog, but uh, they don't want to do that. So as long as we can keep the VA uh, settling up on these claims and we can win some, uh, you're not going to win them all. It's just not meant to be you're not going to win them all. Uh, some people might get 50%, some may get 40 some less. Uh, uh, but there's going to be some hundred percenters out there too, yep. and uh, that's always nice if you can get a hundred percent if you deserve it. That's the main thing, uh, being deserving of what you're trying to get. I think the veterans out there listening now and, and might be listening on the podcast later, or even non-veterans, you know, continue to. To, to contact your politicians and make sure that that the VA is not satisfactory and it, we're not close yet. It, it, as long as they continue to hear that, uh, they'll keep pushing for change with the VA. But if they're if the politicians' constituents, if, if they don't hear that buzz, it, it's not going to be on their mind. So um, even though the VA will continue to hammer into our minds that the appeals backlog at the local regional offices are two or three years out. I don't doubt that's true, but that's not acceptable. I, I just wrote an email to Secretary of the VA, Dr. Shulkin, the other day. I said I was told by this VA regional office that they're three years out on appeals. And I told the doctor, I said, I don't doubt that, but that's not acceptable, and he agrees with me. And, and so... Uh, um, these claims need to get worked sooner than later. I'm, I, I won't accept two to three years. If a year goes by, that's when I start greasing the skids. That's long enough. Even a year is too long as far as I'm concerned. But compromising, if an appeal's been pending for a year, I start banging on the director's door, uh, the assistant director's door, and if I get fed the same line, we're behind two to three years, don't bother us. <laughs> I go right to Dr. I go right to Dr. Shulker. I said, this may, be, this may be true, but but it's not acceptable. And you're right. Uh, it takes the, uh, all the veterans, all you veterans out there should at least contact your, your uh, uh, representatives, uh, your congressmen, senators, even your your uh, state representatives, because uh, they have a say, too. I mean, you know, they can throw their two cents worth in. Uh, 
Uh, yeah, this is not acceptable. These uh, humongous backlogs that they claim they have, that they've generated, in my opinion, their sales in these backlogs. And uh, they're totally uncalled for. They should, uh, this has been going on far too long. And if they haven't come up with a remedy for it by now, that, that's a, a strong indication that they have no intention to unless they're forced into it. And the only people I know that can do that is Congress. So we have to somehow or the other get this uh, system straightened out so when a person... You know, when you file a claim with the BA now, chances are the guy that filed it for you or, or accepted your claim in the BA, he won't, he'll be retired before you get that claim done. So, uh, and that's senseless. That don't make any sense. I got a case I just took over in Florida. Guy's been waiting four years for a traveling board with the Board of Veterans Appeals. Now, first of all, I never would have went the traveling board route in the first place. That, that's probably the longest wait. But somebody within the VA or his power of attorney, whoever it was, said, "Oh, you got to do the traveling board. That's the way to go." Folks, don't do a traveling board unless you want to wait an extra couple of years. The only thing a traveling board does is it gives you the opportunity to see your judge three feet from you in a room. That's not going to make any difference. <laughs> just as good to do a video. Just as good to do a video conference with them on a television. They're in Washington D.C. You're at the VA regional office. You get your hearing a lot sooner. Um, unless they devote more law judges and and employees to these traveling board hearings, don't select a traveling board. Just don't. I agree with that. I think the traveling board is a waste of time. I think it's a no video different. conference is probably the better way to go uh, because it's just as legal. You're sitting there staring eyeball to eyeball to the judges. And uh, what's wrong with a video conference? Yeah, you know, if it's important for someone to look at their eyeball and be in the physical presence of the person and they don't mind waiting a couple of years extra, I get that. That's fine. Um, but as the power of attorney, I'm not interested in waiting a couple of years longer. And you can achieve the same success with a video conference. I believe you're right, John. I really do. Um because I've known so many veterans that have been successful with the video conference. Uh, I know Stretch, uh, uh, he did a video conference, and, and he won out. Uh, uh, he, well, he told me it was a lot less stressful than trying, you know, all the hassle of waiting on a... a uh, traveling judge. Uh, right. So uh, that makes sense. Made sense to me. And, you know, it was kind of 
uh, right there in his own environment. So he he did rather well, and he won his claim. But uh, I just got uh, I just got I was just gonna say that uh, as a piece of news, I was talking to the uh, Board of Veterans Appeals the other day, and uh, the docket data is always based on the date of the Form Nine the substantive appeal that you send to the Board of Veterans Appeals, that's technically the docket date that they, and, and the Board of Veterans Appeals hears claims in the order of the docket date. Um, I was told that the docket date they're working on now is March of 2013. So essentially, if you file a Form 9 today, um, you're waiting four years, and that's assuming that you don't have a traveling board hearing or a video conference. Now, even if you have a traveling board or a video conference, that doesn't change the docket date. Um, but uh, March of 2013 is what the BVA told me that they're working on now. So so essentially, any, any Form 9 substantive appeals that were filed after that, you're still waiting. March 13th to the present, you're still waiting. That that's four years. So that's a long time. Four years. That's unacceptable, too, John. Well, what they told me is because I had a case, um, October two thousand twelve. I said, "Well, my docket date's October two thousand twelve. Why isn't it being decided?" And then then their excuse was that, "Well, this particular judge." was assigned to the traveling board. <laughs> and so this judge is all over the country doing the traveling board, and that's how they got behind. So that, that might be another reason not to accept the traveling board. Um, but, but the traveling board, it, it, pulls, it pulls these law judges out of their office in D.C. I don't know if the traveling board is really all that viable. It's been around as long as I've been doing this, so I guess they feel like it's a good thing. Uh, you have veterans that want to meet the judge eye to eye. I guess they, they, they're entitled to that. Of course, they can always request a hearing in Washington D.C. too. But then they got to travel there, though. So that that that's a problem. But I don't know. I don't know if the positives outweigh the negatives for these traveling boards. To be honest with you. Um. First of all, if they're going to have traveling judges, they ought to have traveling judges. They should hit each regional office at least monthly. And uh, they don't do that. It's uh, it's due to lack of uh, law judges. I, I think if they uh, were... That's right. To... Uh, there's a... Uh, I'm, had a photo of a bunch of them there a while back, all of them. There wasn't enough there to decide nothing. Not when you're dealing with tens and thousands of clients. Well, what it takes is is hiring and and apportioning more more money to to hire these law judges. Um, and uh, but but it's all about money. Yeah, it's all about money there again. See, the VA says, well, we can't afford it. Well, if the VA was fully funded, then they could afford it. Uh, they just need someone to ride herd over them to, to uh, see to it the money is properly spent and not on all these hoop-to-raw parties that they 
been known to have. Well, I like the direction we're going with, with President Trump to this point. I, I like the responses I've been getting from Secretary of the VA, David Shulkin. Uh, he and his staff have been more than responsive to emails that I've sent to him on particular cases that I think that I think merits their attention. I always get a call back from the regional office the next day, and, and it's, it, it's always a very friendly conversation. And so you've got a secretary who's cracking the whip, which is a good thing. That's right. Well, let's hope it. Uh, I think it'll be a slow process, though, John. But I think Trump will keep nudging the VA until he uh, the best he can. And uh, right now, I, although I'd like to see more, uh, I don't believe we can complain. I think Trump has done pretty good. Well, yeah, you know, I think that certainly uh, within the realm of the Department of Defense, they're happy with them. The Department of Veterans Affairs, they're happy with them. And uh, other areas, they're not so happy with him. But uh, uh, he's taken on the attitude that he was elected to to, to be himself and and do what he's going to do with the uh, assistance of his cabinet members. And and he's got a, a... a Senate and Congress that are Republican heavy, which he's afforded the opportunity to do a lot of the things he wants to do. Now, some of the things he hasn't been able to do, which is probably a topic for another day. Um, but uh, um, yeah, I'm 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 uh, I'm I'm pretty interested to see how these next four years play out. I am too. I'm very interested and. Uh... Let's hope we don't end up in another conflict, but that could upset the apple cart as far as veterans go. Uh, uh, we don't want to see no more conflicts, but uh, we got enough going on. Let's hope they don't accelerate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know, it's... Uh... Yeah, I don't know what to say about North Korea. You know, you don't want a conflict, but you know, you, you can't you can't allow that type of aggression. Um, no. Sure. When we start when we start hearing rhetoric about threatening our country with intercontinental ballistic missiles, nuclear warhead tips, stuff of that sort, um, whether they really have it or not. Not the issue. The fact is, they're claiming they they will or or they have or they will in the near future, and 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 you know they're talking about uh, you know the North Korean leader will have uh, the the ability of striking coastal cities within the next few years with one shot. So that that can't happen. Absolutely can't happen. So we no. need to nip that. In the- uh, it's it's a shame that North Korea is. Uh, pushing the envelope like they are, and and uh, you know, uh, usually wars start out with talk, bad talk, and uh, if if that yahoo 
over North Korea, he, he gets froggy. I, I don't know what else we can do other than re, respond or or take him out before he takes it, you know, causes severe damage over here. Let's hope John can keep a, keep a noose on him. I don't know. All, all um, it takes is one, one itchy trigger finger, doesn't it? Right. Oh, we, we yeah. Gotta hope China, we got to hope China can keep the noose on uh, Kim, Kim Jong-un, I think is his name. So we'll have to rely on the Chinese to a large degree. Yeah. Uh, uh, China, so far, I mean, anyway, that's the way the news indicates. It uh, uh, seems as if China thought Trump was okay and that they're going to try to ring in this North Korean uh, idiot. If uh, if China does that, the whole world would be better for it if they can ring him in without him starting something that uh, no telling what how it would end up. If if he starts something foolish, uh, it could be bad. It could be bad for the whole world. Right. But, uh, yeah, we could go on about politics all day. But as far as the VA goes, guys, um, your listeners out there and, and future listeners, call me. My my phone number, again, is 651-303-3062. And my email is benefitsagent at comcast.net. Feel free to give me a call. Well, John, I'd say we're nearly out of time. So before... Yep. Uh, uh, Bog Dog Radio shuts us off, uh, which they have been known to do in the past. <laughs> and in the we future. Might as well, <laughs> yeah, and probably will in the future. <laughs> We'd be talking away there, and then we don't know it until we get listening to the programs, and all of a sudden it stops. But uh, we'd like to thank everybody that uh, tuned in, and I hope you learned something. And, of course, all the Had It listeners out there, we appreciate every one of you. Uh, we would like to add some call-ins, but uh, uh, we didn't get them. So. Uh, but anyway, uh, John, we appreciate you being here, and we'd like to get you back on as soon as we can. And uh, you're always a wealth of information for, for the veterans. And... So, um, uh, this will be Gerald Cook uh, with Jay Basser and John Dorley will be signing off for now. You've been listening to the Hadit.com Blog Talk Radio Show, sponsored by Hadit.com. All opinions expressed here are the opinions of the individuals appearing on the show and are not the opinions of Hadit.com or Blog Talk Radio. Tune in next time for another edition of Hadit.com Blog Talk Radio and the Ask Basher Show.